Liz, our uh, Cactus Campus and our venue across this campus join us live now for the teaching in the Word. Uh, why don't we all bow together as one body in Christ. Father, uh, we thank you for this day that we set aside to uh, worship you and now study your Word. And Lord, you know we're in a series here talking about the red-letter parts of our Bible, the words of Jesus, and what he said about so many topics that are very near and dear to our hearts and our lives today. So as we uh, scratch the surface, Lord, on this idea of worry, something that all of us struggle with, I pray that you might uh, speak to our minds and our hearts through the very words of Jesus, and that we might incorporate these into our lives so that we might experience life change. And so we open ourselves up to you now, and we pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. So clearly, hands down, without a doubt, of all the seven things that we are looking at in this series on what Jesus said, uh, the one that we're looking at today is for me, uh, clearly. Uh, we could almost retitle this message, what Jesus said to Jamie, <laughs> about worry. Uh, as far back as I can remember, my parents tell me this, ever since I was a very little guy, I have been a worrier. And the way you can recognize a worrier is through two words, what if. A worrier will always begin sentences with what if. So we were moving to a new town when I was in second grade, and I said, what if the kids don't like me when we get to this new town? What if I don't get good grades in third grade? Then in junior high, it was what if I'm not cool in junior high? A long shot, I know, but what if I'm not cool in junior high? And then I got to high school. What if I don't make the wrestling team? What if I don't win a match or two? What if so-and-so says no to homecoming? What if I say something stupid at homecoming? What if I don't get into college? What if I don't like college? In fact, it was so obvious that I was a worrier growing up that one Christmas, my dad, who's got a very, very dry and sarcastic sense of humor, wrapped up a plaque under the Christmas tree, and when I opened it up, it said, don't just sit there, worry. <laughs> it's kind of his way of saying, that's you, kid, and that's been my life story. And then, as you guys know, when I was 17 or 18, I became a Christian, and now my tune changed. Now I said, what if I don't please God the way the Bible says I should? What if I miss his will for my life? What if I go into the ministry and fail? Uh, what if my kids don't walk with God? Uh, what if my church doesn't grow? What if it does grow and I can't handle it? I mean, over the years, you name it, if something has been placed before me, I will worry about it. I will stew about it. And my only consolation is that you guys are almost as bad as me. As I wrestle with many of you throughout the week, I hear you talk about all the what-ifs as well. But worry is almost a universal condition, really, as we're going to see today, a result of the fall. It's not how God intended us to function in this world, but all of us struggle with it. I found interesting a study done back in the 90s by Parents and Teenagers magazine. They found that out of a large sample of Christian parents polled, 15% said that they lose sleep over whether their teenager is going to have ac academic success or not. 24% lose sleep over who their kid's going to marry. 41% lose sleep over whether their kid will get involved with drugs or, or alcohol or even tobacco. And a whopping 56% of Christian parents polled lose sleep over whether their kid will continue to walk with God into adulthood or not. Here's the deal. We all struggle with worry at times in our lives. Some of us confessedly more than others, but all of us do. And the good news is, is that Jesus dealt with this topic head on when he was on this earth. 
And so no more introduction. Let's take a look at the words of Jesus. If you brought a Bible, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to take a look at verses 25 to 34, pretty much parked there for the rest of our time today. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's the scripture on your outline in your bulletin. And as always, I'll put it up here on the screen. So it'll be before all of us. Follow along as I read Jesus's very pointed words about this dragon that we call worry. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, as I meditated on these words this week and spent some time in study, I got to tell you, I could do an entire series on these words, and you would not be bored. So we're just going to scratch the surface of what Jesus is saying here about this subject of worry. And as we do, I want you to notice three key things that I think Jesus is telling us here that are very instructive about worry and how you and I should deal with it. And the first thing I observe him saying is this, and that is that worry distracts us from the deeper and more important things in life. Have you found that yet? Uh, worry distracts us from the deeper and more important things in life. So look at how he begins there again in verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, drink, uh, what, about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. There's two words you want to focus on there that will help you fully understand the logic of what Jesus is saying. Those are the words anxious and life. That word anxious that the New International Version translates, I think, better worry in the original Greek literally means to be full of care. It, it takes on the idea that you have consuming thoughts uh, about certain things, even important things like food and clothing, but it always is used in the context, this word anxious, that you're putting too much thought, too much energy into something that at the end of the day, God says, I don't want you to be that focused on that. And so don't miss that what Jesus is telling us here uh, by implication here is that we need to be very careful not to give life. That's the second word there, life, meaning I think the base things of life, things like food and drink and clothing. And Jesus would add in his other teachings, things like money, possessions, job, career, education, all very important things, all things that go into life the basic aspects of life. Jesus is telling us here not to give these things too much of your anxious or, or, or energy behind worry because there are more important things that God has designed your life to focus on. More important things that he wants your soul and your emotions and your thoughts to be consumed with. 
And so don't miss this, guys. By implication, Jesus is telling us here that when we worry about these base things of life, the things that the Gentiles, the rest of the world, are consumed with, that they have the power to become a huge distraction to the more important things and more important issues of our life. Jesus taught this all over the Gospels. At one point, he was telling a story, many of you know this, about a seed and soil. He was telling a story about a guy who's planting seed, and the seed fell on all different kinds of soil. And one of the kinds of soil it fell on, it allowed it to grow up, this plant. But as it grew up, it grew up among a bunch of other weeds and thorns. And as you can imagine, this plant got choked out by the weeds and thorns. And Jesus' point was, is that there will be a time in our lives where our faith is starting to grow, but we need to be very careful because it could get choked out by the worries and cares of this world. And so we know that Jesus hit this theme a lot, that worry is really a dragon because it has the capacity to rob you and me of the things that matter most in life. Now, you might be saying, well, what are the things that matter the most? Good question. And that answer is really easy in the New Testament. And that is God and our relationship with him and others around us and our relationship with them. But it all comes down to relationship. It's the two greatest commandments. You remember that, right? That you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So love and relationship is the number one thing on God's radar for you and me each moment of each day. That's what he's concerned that our lives are consumed with. And here's where it gets sticky. Because what Jesus is suggesting here is that worry, now don't miss this, even worry about others in our lives whether it's your kid or your spouse or your neighbor or your coworker or an extended family member, worrying about them actually will rob you of the kind of relationality that God wants you to have with them. That's what Jesus is setting up here. He's basically saying you can either worry about things in life or have healthy, joy-producing, life-giving relationships in the two most important areas of life, God and others. And that's what he's saying. And so the very practical point that comes out of this, and I'll just warn you, some of you aren't going to like this. In fact, you're going to resist it as I initially say it here right now. But I think this is spot on to what Jesus is saying. The practical point that comes out of this is this. You can't truly love someone and worry about them at the same time. You really can't. You can't love somebody and obsessively worry about them at the same time. Now listen very close so that you don't misunderstand. Can you show concern for another person and love them at the same time? Absolutely. Can you show care for another person and love them at the same time? Sure. Can you even focus on another person's life in a wonderful way and love them at the same time? Obviously, because that's what love is. But worry about them and obsess about all the what-ifs. I believe Jesus is saying no. And the reason is, is because when you do this, now, now, now don't miss this, but when you are worrying in that way, you are no longer operating in the realm of faith and love. You're not trusting God with that person. You're not trusting them in their own lives. You're obsessively worrying about you. And think about it, the worry is really more about you than them. Uh, the worry is more about your feelings of insecurity and your feelings of fear, and that's not love. And so worry, when it obsessively focuses on things or other people, is all about you. 
It's about your insecurity, as we're going to see, your lack of faith, and even your lack of love and trust. And so the reality is, is that the first thing we need to realize about worry is that not only does it distract us from relationships, but even when we're worrying about relationships, it gets in the way. There really is a distinction in the Bible between a genuine concern and care for loved ones around us, but then crossing that thin line into obsessive worry that in the end is more about our own feelings of insecurity than anything else. And that's why worry robs us of the relationality that God wants us to have. Some of you, even after that very cogent and wonderful explanation, still doubt the, uh, the, the veracity of this truth. And uh, yeah, I want to show you how Jesus showed us this in living color. A couple of encounters after he does this famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, meets up with a family that he would become very close to. Uh, their names are Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Jesus would develop a wonderful, wonderful relationship with this family, but their very first meeting is rather instructive. Let me read it for you from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, because it's just a powerful picture of what he's teaching here in Matthew 6. It says, now as they, Jesus and the 12 disciples, were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a certain village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's words, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. And she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried. Pause right there. Same word in the original Greek used in Matthew chapter 6, that word that means to be overly consumed on something. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. Now, what a powerful story. And I think this story speaks so much to modern ears, it's not funny. You're being told that you're having a very important person and his dignitaries come over to your house for a great dinner that you're to prepare. And this dignitary is not some head of state. He's the eternal son of God. And so if ever you wanted to make a good impression, you'd want to make it on Jesus. And hospitality back then is very similar to hospitality now. You prepare a good meal, you get a really good table set, and if that stuff doesn't happen, then it really kind of looks bad for you. People might be nice, but they're going to go away saying, well, that meal stunk, and I don't think I ever want to go there again. And you can tell that because next time you want to get with them, they'll say, let's go out to eat. But that's another story. (laughs) So Martha knows this, and she's not going to be embarrassed in front of the Son of God, so she says, we got to pull out the best we got to wash their feet, which they did back then. we got to set a great table. we got to prepare a great meal. It's just that Mary is not with the program. Mary decides that she's going to sit at the feet of Jesus and kind of talk with him and learn from him. And, and as you saw in the story, Martha is very frustrated about, about this. She's worried that they're going to fail in their hospitality. And so she essentially says to Jesus, would you tell my lazy sister, that's in the margins, tell my lazy sister... To, to, to get with the program and to be a good hostess. And, and you caught the very piercing, counterintuitive, counterculture response of Jesus. He says, Martha, you're worried about a lot of things right now. 
but there's more important things in life. And you got to believe right then she was thinking, more important than hospitality for the Son of God who's in my house? And what's Jesus' response? Yes, more important than hospitality. More important than feeding us. More important than you looking good. I'm in your midst right now. It's not going to happen for very long, three years at the most. And then I'm going to die on a wooden cross for your sins and then rise on the third day and ascend into heaven. And there'll be tons of stories about me. And you're a part of one of them. And I'm in front of you right now. And Mary has chosen what is good. She has chosen relationality over everything else in life and relationality with Jesus and with God. And by implication, Jesus is telling Martha that her worry has robbed her in that moment of key relationships with Jesus and even with the disciples and even with her sister. Let that sink in a minute. She was worried about them. She was worried about things that you and I would say are legitimate stuff, and they are. But that's the point. Worry is so subtle and it's so powerful that it can rob you, even though it might feel right, it can rob you of the key relationships that God has right in front of you. This is why when many of us worry about our teens or when we worry about our kids going off to college and we allow that worry to run unfettered in our life, it actually creates distance with your kid. Have you found that yet? I mean, when my son went off to college, the girl stayed in state, and so I had them in my sight. When my son went off to college, I mean, the very first phone call back, I said, you know, where, where were you going to church? Uh, did you join University Christian Fellowship? Uh, what's going on with this? What's going on with that? Did you take your Bible? All these things. My wife said, when I got off the phone, she said, you're ruining it. <laughs> you're ruining the whole thing. You're going to push this kid farther away. Let it go. And what was my response? What if? But, but you see, what if he doesn't, what if that, what if, and see, I, I got so, you know, and she just said, let it go. Trust God. You've poured into this kid for 18 years. If it hasn't taken yet, it isn't going to take. And so the reality is, I need to chill out. But there's something in me that wants to worry. There's something in me that wants to scream, even after 30 years of walking with Jesus, what if? So that breaks the question, why do we worry? I mean, if this is true, this first point here, and I think it is, that you can't truly love someone and worry about them at the same time, that worry really distracts us from the more important things in life, then why do you and I do it? Why would a pastor who knows better still succumb to worry too often in his life? And here's why, and it's the second thing Jesus goes on to teach us, and that is that worry attempts to control the future by focusing on potential and unlikely scenarios. It's really true. This is rich. Worry attempts to control the future. It's the way you and I do it by focusing our mind and our heart on potential but very unlikely scenarios. Uh, Jesus hit this one spot on. Look at verses 26 to 29. He says, uh, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So don't miss the logic of what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to back us into a corner. He's saying that you and I, as we already established, worry about the very base things of life, about our jobs, our future, our money, food, clothing, the economy, our health. 
But then he says, you know, hey, the birds and the flowers, which aren't nearly as ingenious or creative or valuable as you, somehow seem to have all their needs met by God. And then he adds a crowning blow to his logic when he says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? Now, that's a very interesting question. The New American Standard Bible, which is a more wooden translation, I like their translation of this, says, uh, which of you by being anxious can add a single cubit to his life? And you're saying, what's a cubit? A cubit back then was a, 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 a measurement uh, of inches and feet and all that. A cubit was about 18 to 36 inches is our best guess. And, and so essentially what Jesus is saying here is that worry won't change the future. It won't help the outcome. It won't even add a yard or an hour to the journey that you're on in life. And so the only reason that you would engage in worry about the future or even the present is that you somehow think you can control it by obsessing about it and all the potential what-ifs you vainly try to control your feelings and your thoughts about the future by focusing on all these potential and even unlikely possibilities and by so doing you think that you're preparing yourself for what might come but what you're really doing is robbing yourself of the present. And as we've seen of the relationships that God has for you in the present, because you're not living in the future. And quite frankly, in a future that most likely won't become reality, because the things you worry about probably aren't going to happen. But the reality is, is that just so by so doing, it's an issue of control. And as we're going to see even in a minute here, an issue of lack of faith. You know, to be sure, it's interesting, in his book, Scared to Life, Douglas Rumford cites a study that was done uh, a while back in which they polled numerous Americans on the things that they worried about. And the fascinating result, 60% of the things that Americans worry about are things that are unfounded that are not very likely to happen, more than half. So things like worrying about dying tomorrow. <laughs> you get an ache in your side and you go, I, I know it's MS or I know it's this and I'm, I'm dying. I, I, I say that to Kim all the time, you know, she'll, she'll say, what's wrong with you today? And I'll say, well, I, I don't feel well, and it's either uh, the onset of the flu or pancreatic cancer. Which do you think it is? <laughs> she'll say, well, I don't think it's pancreatic cancer. I said, but if it is, I'm gone, I'm gone. I said, you know, and, and what's the chances of that? Probably not very high. I've talked to my doctor about it, and he said, I, just, I don't think you have that, but I, I, I get it. Or, or we worry about our child getting into a terrible accident. You ever done that? You know, they get on a plane or a car and you go, oh my gosh, we're gonna get in an accident. The chances of that are very, very minute when you look at the statistical probabilities of that. But we worry on those things. We worry on things that really have no foundation to them. They're not likely to happen. Interesting, the study went on to talk about uh, other things that we worry about. 20% of the things that we worry about, isn't this fascinating, are things that are now behind us. So why did I say that stupid thing at that party last night? Oh, you know, as I was backing out, I hit that car. Why didn't I see that car? I should have seen that car. We worry about things that are in the past. We obsess about those things, but you can't do anything about it. It's water under the bridge. Further, 10% of our worries, now this is fascinating, are about petty things that don't make any difference. Uh, what if I don't get that bonus and can't put a, an addition on my house? Uh, what, what if I go over my, my allotment on my mileage for my re rental car or my, 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 my uh, leased car? I mean, worry about things that at the end of the day, if you were cornered by God and said, do they really matter? You'd say, no. 
But we focus on those things. And then lastly, they found that 5% of our worries are about real possibilities that we can't do anything about. So like your company's merging with another company and you know one job's going to get cut out of the two that are in your area, and yours might be one of them, but really you can't do anything about it. They're already making the decision, and yet we tend to obsess about it. Or a friend of mine who got recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, you know, he told me there's no use to obsess and worry about this because it's already done, and the progression will be the progression. And so I just need to face life courageously and faithfully as they come. See, 5% of our worries are about things that most likely will happen, but we really can't do anything about. So do the math. You got 60% and then 20% and then 10% and then 5%. That, that's 95% of the things that we worry about all fall into those categories. That leaves 5%. Now, this is interesting. 5% of the things that you and I worry about are very real possibilities that you can do something about. So you remember being in school and you would worry about, am I going to do well on that test? Instead of worrying, why don't we study? Because <laughs> if you study, you just might be able to do something about it. Then you get out of school and you, and you get married and you wonder, you know, is my marriage going to be okay and will it work? And, you know, it seems like it's going downhill a little bit and you start to worry about it. Don't worry about it. Do something about it. Love your wife or your husband. Care for them. Even share your worry with them and go into intimacy even more. See, 5% of the things we worry about are real possibilities, and we can do something about it. But don't miss what this whole study was trying to say. 19 out of 20 of the things that you and I worry about are not realities. They are either likely possibilities that we can't do anything about, or they are unlikely possibilities that are pretty much unfounded or petty. And so the only reason that you and I would focus on those things is to somehow control what we can't control. And that's the, that's the core of worry. Uh, we're trying to deal with what might happen tomorrow, today, by focusing our energy on it that will not do our souls any good. Corey Ten Boom, I thought, nailed it when she once said this. Look up here on the screen. This is good. She says, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And she's right. Worry isn't going to do anything for you tomorrow. All it's going to do is zap you <laughs> in the present. And so here's the very practical principle, and I'm not going to focus on this much, but this is contained in the text here, the practical point of point number two here, and that's that God wants us to live then and function in the present. That's why he's so concerned about worry, because worry takes your current mental and emotional energy, and it takes it off the present, again, off the relationships around you, and it focuses in the future, or it obsesses about the past, and as a result of that, we're not where God wants us. So this is what verse 34 is all about, where Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so the $10 question as we wrap this discussion up is simply this. How then do you and I remain in the present and remain in the present in such a way that we're not obsessing <laughs> about all the what-ifs or what might come down the road? to come down the pike. Uh, how do you and I stay focused in the now, keep God front and center in the now so that we aren't tempted to worry about what might be? 
And believe it or not, guys, the answer is a one-word answer that all of you are very familiar with, but you might never have tied to this idea of worry. And the answer is faith. Faith in God, faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, the kind of internal disposition of the heart and mind in which you and me are constantly depending on God, realizing He's the one in control, not us, and trusting Him for our future. And here's what Jesus tells us. Faith is the antithesis of worry, and it has the power to totally blow it away or dissipate it. That's what Jesus teaches us in this. That faith and worry, now don't miss this, really are enemies. They're not bedfellows. They're not friends. They hate each other. And when one is riding point in your soul, the other one has no room. So it's either faith or worry at any one time in your life. Look at how Jesus puts this in verses 30 to 33. This is so cool. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Here it is. Oh, you of little, say it with me, faith. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't miss this. The reason you and I uh, can't fight worry in any single moment really comes down to the fact that we are unwilling in that moment, or maybe unable, but I don't think so, to trust God, to trust his sovereignty, his care, the fact that he is powerful, that he is good, and that he is more than able to handle anything that comes our way in life. We have too little faith. That's what Jesus says. We need to remember that God is God. He says not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will. Every single hair on your head is numbered. He is that in control. He loves you that much. And when you and I trust him with our lives, lo and behold, by the very nature of that, you will be blowing worry out of the water. Because you can't trust God and worry at the same time. They're kind of not compatible. And so I love how George Mueller, the great pioneer of orphanages in England in the 18th century, once said it. This is good. He says, the beginning of worry is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of worry. And what you need to know is that this is all over the New Testament. Every single New Testament writer hits this theme in some way or the other. Paul the Apostle, as he was wrapping up the book of Philippians, said, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, present your request to God, trust him. And if you do that, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Peter, in his letter, says it even more pointedly. He says, cast all of your anxiety, your worry upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. And Peter knows that as you cast your worry on him, that God is going to take that worry away as you trust him. And so here's the practical point that comes out of this one, and this is the thought I want to leave you with, and that is this week, this day, this month, whenever it happens to you next, every time you're tempted to worry, I want you to take it to God. Because that's what Jesus teaches us. Every time we worry, and I mean every time, little or small things, you worry, pause right there, look up to heaven or look down however you pray, and just yield whatever you're worrying about to God. 
Take it to him in prayer. Take it to him in thought. Take it to him in song and, and keep doing this. I mean, I know what some of you are thinking. I'm a lawyer's kid. I know what the rebuttal is to this. You're thinking, well, Jamie, I've been a Christian for a while now, and I've been trying that, and it doesn't work. I've tried taking it to God, and I take it to God, and the worry still comes back. What's the answer to that one? Keep doing it, right? I know it's hard to believe, but I see a personal trainer three times a week. It's not working, but I do see a personal trainer about three times a week. And I'm actually no poster child for personal training because I've gained 20 pounds since I've seen the guy. <laughs> and the reason is, is because I don't do what he says. I, I go in and work out for half an hour and I feel good and then I stop at Chick-fil-A on the way home. And you're just, <laughs> In fact, I can see Chick-fil-A right from the window and I'm working out thinking, ooh, I'm gonna be there. And that's, so it's, it's, it's not a good system. And, now imagine if I, if I followed my trainer's instructions for, say, the week, which is usually very low carbs and work out a little bit more and, and eat less, all those you know, fun things to do, and say I, I follow that for a week and I come back in and say to him, his name's Lance, and say, Lance, you know what, I did it, and, and I didn't lose that much. It didn't work. What would he say to me? Keep doing it. Keep doing it. You didn't do it long enough. A week? A week? And I'm like, but that week seemed long. I know. In fact, he keeps telling me, I hate this, he says, you got to develop a lifestyle. I'm like, a lifestyle? I'm not sure I'm interested in that, but that's another discussion. <laughs> I'm serious. And so, so the reality is, is that if I do want to get more serious about that, I can't whine after trying it for a week. I know, and I'm smart enough to know it really does need to become a lifestyle, right? Amen. That's just life. It's the same way in our spiritual life. Uh, the Bible says that, that physical is of some value, but of much more value is your soul. Of much more value is your spiritual life. And, and so God says that he doesn't want you to worry. And when you do, come to him, trust him, let it go. And it's hard. I'm not, I'm not trying to sell you something here today. It's really hard. Any of us who've been doing this for any length of time know that we lay something down and then without even knowing it, three seconds later, we take it back. <laughs> We say, God, I'm trusting with this with you, and then we grab it back when he's not looking, when he is looking, but we grab it back. <laughs> and the reality is, is that God says, keep doing that. Learn to lay things down before me, and eventually you'll start to get the habit right. I want to close with a wonderful story uh, that comes out of the old days of the YMCA. You guys know what a YMCA is? The Young Men's Christian Association. And some of them, unfortunately, have lost the sea over the years. They, they, they started to get less Christian and more about social things, but in the, and we're getting that back. But in the early days, the YMCA was, was very Christian and founded by some very godly people. One of the earlier great directors of the YMCA was a guy by the name of Dr. George McCausland. Uh, McCausland was very good at running YMCAs, and at one point in his career, they moved him to western Pennsylvania to try to turn around a, a very unsuccessful YMCA. They were losing membership, they had financial difficulties, a lot of staff problems. You guys get the picture. And, and re as a result of this, George McCausland found himself working about 85 hours a week. He found himself getting very little sleep at night, and he took very little time off, and he was just obsessing about how to turn this YMCA around. And it was very hard. Everything he tried didn't seem to work. Eventually, he went to a therapist and said, I'm not getting a lot of sleep, and this is what I'm doing. And the therapist said, I think you're on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Today, we'd call it a burnout, but back then, they called it a nervous breakdown. He said, somehow, you need to let go. Somehow, you need to let God. 
So one afternoon, George McCausland decided to take the afternoon off, and he grabbed a, a pen and a paper, uh, yesterday's equivalent of an iPad. He grabbed a pen and paper, and, and he took a walk in the western Pennsylvania woods. And, and he writes about this, and he says, you know, as I took the walk, just taking a walk in the woods, I felt myself starting to relax. I felt my neck start to get less tightened and my body start to, to, to relax a bit. And, and so he decided to sit down by a tree, and, and for the first time in months, he said he relaxed. At that point, he got his pad and and paper out, and he decided that he was going to try to let go of his burdens by writing a letter to God. And it was one of the shortest letters he ever wrote, because here's what he wrote. He said, Dear God, today I hereby resign as the general manager of the universe. Love, George. <laughs> and in only the way that George McCausland would say, he then writes, and wonders of wonders, God accepted my resignation. And that was the beginning, not the be-all and end-all, that was the beginning of him trusting God for this mountain before him. See, I think you and I need to do that today for many areas in our lives. I, I told you guys last summer I was very close to burnout, and I uh, took a month off and went to my hometown and hid out there and, and just kind of let go of Scottsdale Bible Church for an entire month. And it was incredibly healing. I took a lot of walks along the river that weaves through my hometown and a lot of walks in the park and Kim and I just relaxed and did a lot of talking and praying. And the first half of it was really hard because it's always hard to let go. Larry Crabb always says you need to detach before you can attach and detaching is really hard. But, but as I started to get to like weeks three and four of this break, I, I started to, to get my second wind again and even my, my renewed love for Scottsdale Bible Church. In a very real way, I, I went to my hometown and I just laid it out before God and said, I need to resign <laughs> as being the general manager of the universe, thinking I can fix all the problems of Scottsdale Bible Church and my family and all those things. And I needed to give it up to him. I, I've told you this before, one of the bumper stickers I hate I don't see them much anymore, thankfully, but when they first came out, I, could, I couldn't believe it. Are those bumper stickers that say, Jesus is my co-pilot. Do you remember those? I just thought, is that more of a, a stupider thing to say? And, and some people didn't get it. Why is that dumb? Some of you have it on your car. I know you're going to rip it off now, and you should. <laughs> because here's theologically why. And, and that is, and let's just go with the image for a second. He ain't your co-pilot. He's the pilot, and you're back in coach. That's a better image. And the second you walk into the cockpit and say, hey, can we fly this plane together? What is he going to say to you? Get back and coach. I'm in control of this thing. I love you. I'm flying the plane. You're along for the ride. That's what God says. But how easily we forget it, right? And we try to take control. Or we sit back there and coach and we stew about all the what ifs. And God says, no, just stay along for the ride. I love you. I care for you. I take care of birds. And you're much more valuable than them. So let it go. Stop worrying and trust me and see how that does for you. Somehow you and I need to write letters this week to God. We need to resign as the general managers of the universe and allow him to be the manager of our lives he wants to be. Last night I got a great email. We'll wrap up with this from one of our uh, very good Sunday school teachers who, who came here on a Saturday night and he said that uh, he and his wife drove home and they asked themselves two questions. One was, what are we worrying about? And initially he said nothing, but then as she talked, <laughs> and that the way it is, he thought, yep, I guess I am worrying about that, I am worried about that, I am worried about that. And he said they made their list. And then the second thing they asked themselves is, how are we going to let go of this? 
Maybe you need to do that with somebody this week. Maybe you need to, to ask a spouse, a friend, a coworker, a, a family member, what, what, do you, what do you think we're or I am worrying about? And, and how can I let go of that and let God? Because if you do that, worry will fade and faith will reign in your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you love us, that you care for us, that you are our God and we are your people. Thank you for the red letter parts of our Bible, for these words of Jesus that are truly life-giving to our very souls. And Lord, I know we can all relate to Jesus' words here because we do worry, uh, some of us more than others, but we worry. And so God, help us today. Help us as we apply these things uh, to get victory over the things that ail us (laughs) and to find a life that is more about peace and relationality, love for others and love for you as we follow you. Do that in us, we pray. Help us to let go. We pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.